from Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie, Media, Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik, usually hosted by Brad Friedman, who once again escaped out of an open window. And who can blame him? I'm Angie Coyle, keeping the place occupied. Another indication that Dear Orange leader, President Steve Bannon, and all of their friends are sticking to the plan of undermining the world of facts. Check out the list of lies compiled by major news outlets in the wake of Trump's CPAC verbal vomit. One actually speaks volumes over the others. He lied about U.S. military readiness, Obamacare, the 2017 election, and American spending in the Middle East, to name a handful. And all of those lies are easily disputed with actual documented facts. But here's the real gem. He lied about Sweden again. Context. You probably recall that in mid-February, the toddler-in-chief was railing about the dangers of bad hombres, saying, you look up to it. saying, you look at what's happening in Germany. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden, who would believe this? Well, nobody believed it. There was nothing to believe. Nothing had happened in Sweden, quote, that night. And even a foreign prime minister wanted to know what Trump was smoking. But to signal his firm belief that his anesthetized followers are burrowed well into his pocket, he said it again at CPAC, quote, the people over there understand that I'm right. Take a look at what's happening in Sweden. There's nothing happening in Sweden. But of course, his acolytes all applauded. Now, here's a truly nasty bit of follow-up business. In the world of White House coverage, there are press conferences, and there are less formal gatherings called gaggles. So the tradition with gaggles is that news organizations will be notified and they can send along a representative. That is not the case when an administration thrives on lies and has to continually undermine the country's press. So, on the very day that Trump strung together one falsehood after another, Sean Spicer held a gaggle. And he broke every precedent as to who got to be there. CNN Sarah Murray described exactly what happened, and the Washington Post published a transcript of that. So listen up. We lined up, she said. We were told there was a list ahead of time, which is sort of abnormal, but we put our name on a list. And then when we went to enter, I was blocked by a White House staffer who said, we were not on the list for this gaggle today. 
Now, normally, she said, if you were going to do something like this, an extended gaggle off camera, you'd have one person from each news outlet. As you know, we have multiple people from CNN here every day. So if you're going to do something beyond a pool, which is the smallest group of reporters that then disseminates the information, you would have one person from every news outlet. That is not what the White House was doing today. What the White House was doing was handpicking the outlets they wanted for this briefing. So Breitbart, wow, check out this list. Breitbart, the Washington Times, the One America News Network, news outlets that maybe the White House feels, oh boy, is she playing this? Oh my goodness. I don't know whether to commend her or smack her. <laughs> so Breitbart, the Washington Times, the One American News Network, news outlets that maybe the White House feels are more favorable were all allowed in, whereas I, she's with CNN, was blocked from entering. Politico was blocked from entering. The New York Times, the LA Times, all of these news outlets were blocked from going to a gaggle. So, of course, the natural person to talk to about this would be the White House Correspondents Association. President Jeff Mason called into CNN, and he said they clearly wanted to have a gaggle that was not on camera and was not the full press corps. We don't object to there being briefings like that, not always on camera. We encourage them when they do something like that to still do it in the press room and in a place where all reporters have a chance to ask questions. That is a tempered response. Not nearly so tempered, the Washington Post's executive editor, Marty Barron. It is appalling that the White House would exclude news outlets like the New York Times, CNN, Politico, the LA Times, and BuzzFeed from its publicly announced briefings. This is an undemocratic path the administration is traveling. There is nothing to be gained from the White House restricting the public's access to information we are currently evaluating, he said, what our response will be if this sort of thing happens again. I suspect he'd best gird himself. This is an administration that thrives on this sort of business. They're playing to the audience that they have prepped exceedingly well since before the election that what they're doing here is not oppressing the press. What they're doing is standing up for the individual who's manipulated by these fake news organizations. To the Trump acolytes, this is heroism. That's what we're up against. As the Post also noted, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer himself previously criticized the idea of limiting media access to the White House. Two months ago in a panel discussion, he said, open access for the media is, quote, what makes a democracy a democracy versus a dictatorship. Well, at least we know he knows what he's doing. While all of this was going on, a rumble of mild encouragement emanated from Washington, D.C., where Republicans have apparently been browbeaten into taking part in a probe into Russia's interference with the U.S. election. Now, they kind of have to play ball on that. Now that Reince Priebus has been busted asking at least the FBI and possibly other agencies to make public statements, statements that is, in favor of the GOP stance on the issue you know, security agencies in their rightful role of White House cheerleaders. 
The latest on both of those stories came in while I was talking to Scott Dworkin. He's with the Democratic Coalition Against Trump. He is the guy behind the Trump Leaks tweets. They're the folks who have documented connection after connection and filed judicial complaint after judicial complaint about the links between Trump Co. and Vladimir Putin. I tried to come up with a summary brief enough to start the conversation, but it is one big ball of yarn. So instead, I asked Scott to break it down into bite-sized bits for us. Scott, it's good to talk to you again. Hey, good to talk to you. You know, I have to tell you, I pride myself on preparation for interviews, and I normally have all the points ready ahead of time. You have such an onslaught of connections between Russia and everyone affiliated with Trump, let alone Trump himself. I, I can't even keep them all straight. And um, yeah. I, I do want to acknowledge some of these are teeny tiny and they could easily be coincidental. And others are pretty mm-hmm. well documented, big honking connections that can't be ignored. Right. So if you had to highlight right. just a couple of those, what do you think needs to get out there to people about these documentable connections? Sure. And so I think one of the key things is to put it in a, into a time frame. Um, and, and that's what we've been focusing on is moving it to a timetable so people can see the progression over time and the deals and how they've built over time and how much more money he's made over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there's there's different things that are coincidences that are a little too too much to grasp. For, for example, we found a, a former executive vice president of Rosneft bought, which is the Russian oil company um, that was in the Trump dossier, uh, they bought, uh, the, the executive vice president bought a property in Sunny Isle, Florida in 2008. And so that was, that right there was a Russian oil connection that was direct. Um, and, and it was very, it's very small in regards to what the significance could be, mm-hmm. uh, except for the fact that it's, again, another another introduction where he had to have known the guy um, and, and, you know, they did business together and that's, that's the bottom line. So what we've been doing is going line by line to find out what the timeline is. Now, I think one of the the few things that stand out to me are the business that his kids have done over there. Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically Don Jr. uh, We found out that he, uh, I think it was 2008, he went over and he was the keynote speaker at a a Russian real estate conference. And we have photos of him over there that he actually has a photo of him sitting there with Russian real estate in the background on the sign. Um, And and it's just, it's just very clear that he used that for deals. The people that were there, uh, members of the Duma and and, and the Russian government were there. Uh, Representatives of Putin were there. Um, And there's no way that he would have been able to go over there without Putin's approval. And that's the way he controls things. So an American coming in to speak at a Russian real estate conference in Moscow as a keynote speaker where they're paying him, mm-hmm. that's another keynote for you to, to keep in mind is they get paid for that. Uh, and so it, there's a bunch of different ways that you can look at it. My guess, um, the biggest, like the, 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 the non-coincidental thing is whenever they go to places that seem like it may be shady, Russia is the biggest example of that. Um, and so Ivanka's quote unquote vacationed there a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she just happens to run into business partners there, uh, you know, and then they do business. So I think we have to redefine and get more basic uh, with it. But uh, if again, if we move into the fact that they have done over a billion dollars worth of transactions with people that are from Russia in the past 30 years, 
You know, I mean, mm -hmm. if we simplify it like that, that I, I think that's pretty clear that there's there's business ties or whatever. And so I, it's it's very confusing to people because there's all these little things like, you know, again, like the keynote speaking or Ivanka going over there, or Eric going over there um, and, and uh, you know, Ivana doing business over there as a representative for Trump. Um, and so there's so many different angles. It's hard to take the approach. And that's 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 why Trump's so hard to grasp, because there's so many different tentacles in everything that he does. Well, it's uh, and pretty, so we uh... just kind of have to hone into something, you know? Mm hmm. Well, I want to point people to a Google Doc that you have linked from your website from the Democratic Coalition. And those are 201 Russian registered Trump companies. And you were just talking about that whole, you know, pile of spaghetti trying to get this all detangled. But Trump has claimed that he has, to some extent, divested his interest in these companies. I don't believe him when his mouth moves, let alone on that specific statement. But is there any way to go piece by piece through these and say, yeah, he's real. He personally is really not making money off these, or you know, is is it safe to make the blanket statement that because his name is on it, and because we don't see his taxes, and because we he won't be specific on how he's divested what, we can assume he's still making money there. Yeah, I, I would assume that he's he's definitely making money off of deals that he's made with people there. Like that's that's for sure because a lot of those connections um, that he has in Eastern Europe and former former Soviet states. Uh, there's a lot of involvement with the Russians there, and so he's he's still doing, you know, business over there. And I'm I'm sure that they're not gonna <laughs> they're not silly enough to go over there right now, any of the kids or, or him to meet over there. Um, but you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a very interesting uh, thing. You know, when what I think of it is there's not going to be a paper trail to Russia. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be that that's not going to happen. So like any of the registered companies we've looked into we've had too many dead ends where it it just ends as in the name is completely made up it's fictional it's from the 1600s uh and you know that's who's the registered agent for that trump company but i can say that the cadence the way that it's set up the way that it's named the way that they they have multiple companies with different names and numbers mm -hmm. is the same exact way he does it across the world so, and if they've been, if they filed for trademarks like they did years ago, uh, then they've been paying attention to whoever uses the Trump name. So they're probably protecting themselves as well. Uh, and he's the best at that across the world, um, making sure he protects his name. So it's, it's just hard to, without the, you know, someone like the FBI or Interpol or someone, someone like that, they have access to the actual financial transactions. That's what we're going to need. We're going to need that, or we're going to need, you know, documentation of agreements between him and you know a, a russian where it's you know beyond two million dollars or beyond this sale of a, a 98 million dollar house you know maybe involvement with russian oil something like that like we're going to need something like at, at that level where people can look at it and be like oh my god like this is worse than i thought mm -hmm. but you know you also have to wonder how much people care i saw a poll earlier this mm -hmm. week about how many people look favorably upon Putin and Russia. And you'd almost think right. that there'd at least be a knee-jerk opposition to Russia. Uh, you know, we also saw at CPAC, I don't know if it was meant as a joke or what, but little Russian-style flags with the name Trump on them. And those got confiscated, and it's not clear who was responsible for that. But it does indicate right. to me that there's a, a strange, casual nature when it comes to connections to Russia. Right. 
It's it, you know it, I think that's the key here is that they want to keep it so it's casual. They're going to keep it so it's informal for now because uh, they're already progressing with everything they want to do. Mm-hmm. He already met. I mean, two weeks ago Tillerson sat down and met uh, with the Russian government. I mean, like that that was so looked over. You know, in regards to that, they had uh, you you have uh, Trump and Putin speaking at least twice since he won, not mm-hmm. since he was inaugurated. So he once after he was inaugurated, and then once after, um, and, and each time they talk about the economics. So mm-hmm. if you're talking economics, you're talking about sanctions. So I, I, I think that I think with Trump, he may not, and his little cronies, I think they may not have thought they would uh, it would be this serious. They thought that they could, you know, maybe mend relationships and their buddies could make, you know, a trillion bucks off of this deal long term. Um, and, and so I don't I think with people like Flynn, mm-hmm. I don't think Flynn is you know going to be a person who's a complete traitor, you know, anything like that. I think that he got into a situation where he's thinking he can, you know, broker this deal like for real and actually cause peace to happen. I think he really believed that. I think with Trump, he's worried about the business deals and he wants to help his friends. And uh, as you know, different oligarchs come out and say that they did speak with, uh, in fact, speak with uh, Trump and his campaign during the campaign, after the campaign, before inauguration, after inauguration. Uh, I mean, he met with Oops. the Russian oligarch. Son, hang on, hang on. I got some. Know, after. Sure. Whoops. Hold on. Sorry. I just had a, some interference here. Can you back up one sentence and start that over again? Just just a sentence. Or oh, two. so he, he, he met with he met with the Russian oligarch son during the campaign, as uh, he reported uh, from an interview that we have video of that we'll be releasing this afternoon. Um, and in, in it, he said that not only did Trump meet with uh, this Russian billionaire, but Ivanka and the son also talked about Trump Towers Moscow. Mm-hmm. So if they have been doing business there, then they've been doing it via a separate business and just accepted the fact that it's not going to be their name there. That's my <laughs> guess them. as to how it's gone. <laughs> Oh my God. Exactly. Like, and it, it, that's the same thing as like, you know, you can drop the clothing line of Ivanka's, but if you don't, uh, if you don't drop their distributing company, that's the real hunk there. That's where she makes her money. She doesn't make her money off her clothing line. She makes money off of the entire clothing industry that she imports to this country. That okay, is so that, you, that's, that's the kind of thing. Right. And she still does. She's still serving at that position, you know, over wow. there at G3. Uh, let's look at some of the items in the news that are related to this, Scott. Um, I'm talking to Scott Dworkin, who's with the Democratic Coalition Against Trump. Uh, coming out from Bloomberg, a Senate Intelligence Committee investigation of Russia's efforts to influence last year's election is shaping up as an unexpectedly bipartisan effort that could take months to complete as it explores that most significant controversy shadowing the new Trump administration. I got to say, I'm, I'm surprised to even hear this is getting together. How about you? I'm I'm not. I think that uh, just because, you know, I think there's a lot of questions that surround um, interference with the election. I think that people are starting to, again, simplify it and realize what happened. Um, my personal belief is that it, it was a political 9-11. Like, this is the worst uh, scandal, I think, in politics that we'll ever see in our lifetime. Um, and that, this, this the reach of it is extreme. And it, it's kind of like, they're willing to do it right in front of your face because mm-hmm. you can't do anything about it and you don't want to assume that it's true. Right. So the right. most obvious answer here is I, I, I think that the Senate knows and the Republican Party knows 
that they can do two things here. They can play hero, okay, and they can win over the American public again as a Republican uh, and save the day. At the same time, they can also save, save the House. Because uh, if the elections were today, they'd lose the House, Senate, they'd lose everything. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. I think that the, the worst thing is, is they don't realize that they've actually already gone too far. And no matter what they do, there's no redemption now. They've already let him, you know, cause fear and panic, um, you know, and that's going to last for a generation. I don't think that this is this is not stuff you forget in eight years. Um, well, now this we have is the... not going to be the norm. Well, now we hear the story Sorry, that you know Priebus apparently asked the FBI directly to refute and, the, the Russian and reports. other, not just the FBI. That is the key point that I saw. Uh, last night on CNN, uh, Jim Ciudo said, uh, "How you pronounce his name?" Yeah, Jim C- Jim Ciudo said that it was the FBI and other federal agencies were contacted, so it was not just the FBI. And I think that's a, that's huge in regards to uh, how this plays out because that means that it was more of an intimidation factor than anything else. Because um, if you're calling around to multiple agencies, you're not having an issue with that agency in the way that they're relaying information. Um, you're trying to guide what they're doing, and that's propaganda, you know, that goes into the realm of everything that we've been worried about. Scott, I got to ask you before I let you go. I have so much fun. I mean, you got to look for fun where you can find it these days. I have so much fun <laughs> following your Twitter feed because, I mean, you're just you're pretty bold. You're pretty bold there, and that is not something that I associate with Democrats. So right now, we have over three hundred thousand members um, across the country. We have uh, state chairs. Some of them are elected Democrats. All of us, uh, for the most part, are pretty outspoken. We were not as affiliated with the Hillary Clinton campaign. A lot of us helped run the draft Biden, draft Warren, you know, worked with Bernie. Uh, and then there was obviously a lot of Hillary people who have come over uh, during the campaign. And then also, so there was a big mix of people that just wanted to fight against what they were doing. And it wasn't just against Trump. It's against everybody that's beneath them. So if a West Virginia delegate is going to stand up and say that Hillary Clinton should be assassinated in the mall, they should not be a United Airlines pilot. You can be a GOP elected and speak your mind, but we had to stop the bleeding because it was getting out of control. And so it literally is an organization that formed grassroots wise. There's nothing more grassroots than forming it from meditation. I thought that I saw him winning. I went home to North Carolina. I saw the flags everywhere. I saw the, the energy down there, and it mm-hmm. was terrifying. And so I, I, I just knew uh, that there would be a possibility. And so we, we moved into this anti-Trump movement, started to, you know, we, I think it was filed a FOIA for his taxes, and it branched out into, you know, an hour after he, Comey, sent that letter, we filed with the DOJ a complaint against him, and that's now being investigated. So we have 36 actions against 22 different members of the Trump family and friends. Um, We've exposed over a thousand different pieces of evidence involving his business ties and taxes. Um, And specifically with Russia, we have the Trump leaks program. Um, We also use the Trump Russia hashtag for all the evidence. And I think at the end of the day, all we want is it to be a fair, democratic process for the United States of America. 
our membership is not just Democrats anymore. These are people who are fighting for democracy. And I know that it won't last forever because we are a campaign-focused organization. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. Even though we have all this research, our goal and what we're set up for is to win elections. We're mm-hmm. going to get in the dirt. You know, We're going to expose these Republicans on the congressional, the state Senate, and the state House level. We're going to do everything that we can legally to make sure that we win state by state back. And that's the goal is we want to make sure that it's people who are leading the efforts that actually lead the efforts, that actually do the work, that actually, you know, will do the work that, you, you know, we've worked with for over a decade now and seen, you know, Obama come and go together. So uh, it's really a, just a grassroots effort trying to keep America safe and fair. That's not going to happen under this administration. You wouldn't think that would no. be controversial either. Safe and fair. How is that? How is that controversial? <laughs> I know. Well, oh, but you're a traitor. You the papa. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I just saw you type in Cyrillic, and then I get it. The Russian troll. But that it's it's the problem, and so we'll see where it goes in regards to investigations. My guess, this is a guess, total opinion, is that the investigations already happened. It's almost finished, and uh, that's why they've been so quiet. And that's that's stuff. that's my guess is they I just don't see Rubio and McCain tweeting a couple of times about it um, and not really coming to task with it. If you look at McCain's background, he does have some Ukrainian and, and Russian money ties. But uh, at the end of the day, I think um, I'm going to say it and people aren't going to like it. I think Comey and, and McCain are going to play hero. I think those are the two people, Comey especially. Really? Yes. I think I looked at, I've looked into him extensively. Uh, he's a patriot. And I, I know he did the letter thing. I filed to challenge against him. From what I see, he has absolutely no problem prosecuting Russian mafia members. And so he, he's done it before multiple times. Uh, I'm sure he would be dying to do it again. Uh, you have to believe that. You have to believe in someone, right? I'm so going to watch so. for that development. Scott, I, you give me a ton of time and I thank you for it. Sure. Anytime. Scott Dworkin, he's senior advisor to the Democratic Coalition Against Trump, and you can follow him under the Trump Leaks hashtag on Twitter. Coming up next, we are going to be talking about whether it's really time for a third party. I know, peculiar time to be talking about that, but we will. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. In 
the jungle, the quiet jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero. In case you have not noticed, some of the Bernie versus Hillary battles are still going on. It sounds sometimes like a chorus of coulda, woulda, shoulda while the house is burning down. But before you know it, we will be in another election and then a presidential election. So it is our job to find lessons in the past and apply them still. You say third party and someone is going to lob tomatoes at your head. Conventional wisdom is that, especially for Democrats, third parties do nothing but fracture the odds of keeping Republicans down. So why now, of all times, make the case to form a separate progressive party? Well, I refer you to Professor Jonathan Martin's piece at the Huffington Post today. He's a professor of sociology at Framingham University. He says, quote, regardless of who wins the race for the DNC chair, the Democratic Party's deep interests will continue to clash with progressives' basic goals. And there starts his case for a progressive party to compete with Democrats. He's on the line with me. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Good to be here. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to first correct any impressions I may have left in that introduction that you might disagree with. Uh, well, I disagree with the um, implication, not from you, but the impression that uh, uh, many uh, major party members or supporters may have that third parties are ineffective. They have uh, quite a history of accomplishments that many people may not be aware of. Um, I could go into some of those if you like, but um, that's, uh, that's very important. There's a tendency uh, to, uh, to dismiss them as powerless when, in fact, they really uh, have made a big difference in, uh, in promoting and helping to push through various very important reforms in our history. And um, I believe they still have a, uh, a role to play, an important role in American politics, especially at a time when so much of the population is dissatisfied with the major parties and how they're um, failing to address some very significant problems that are facing the country. You know, I think that people who support the idea of a third party, I'd probably put myself pretty close to this camp, is that we look at victories on school boards and city councils and, you know, county supervisors, and we understand that they can have victories at that level. But we get a lot more leery when you get up to senators and presidents. And there, I think it's a little more murky as to how effective and potentially how damaging these things can be. So how would you address that? Well, for one thing, Bernie Sanders himself is an independent uh, who is a senator who grew out of a third-party movement in his own state, Vermont, and so he demonstrates that it is possible. Uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were quite a few um, state legislatures, uh, sorry, state legislators, uh, governors, members of Congress who um, were members of third parties, and um, because they were able to get into power at that level, they exerted uh, quite an influence on the major parties in terms of addressing their concerns and implementing some very significant reforms, uh, progressive reforms that people still appreciate today. So I think um, many of us are unaware of that history, of that potential. Well, how and not only that... Well, let me interrupt you there because I want to know how comparable those times are with these times because obviously, you know, the, the parties have evolved to multi-billion dollar machines and they're further from the American public than they have ever been, more insulated from their impressions and more insulated from what they truly care about. So how valid can those comparisons be? 
Well, um, you know, I think we can go back, I was about to say, to uh, the time when um, the Republican Party was a third party that quickly became a major party and displaced the Whigs because uh, both of the major parties at that time were not addressing the issue of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you might say, all right, that was the middle of the 1800s. Uh, but at this point, we have some very serious issues that, again, are not being addressed by the major parties. And um, uh, intensifying discontent about that. And so we may be approaching a period um, in history doesn't repeat itself, but mm -hmm. there seems to be a very strong echo with what happened in the mid-1800s, uh, where um, large numbers of people are deserting the major parties. We have, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a huge increase in independence, and uh, we may be at a point where people are willing to make that break and support something um, comparable to um, not the same type of party, but... Um, uh, the same type of process where a new third party emerges and then displaces a um, uh, one of the uh, existing parties that is failing to live up to its promises and address um, uh, the, the very serious problems in our country, especially um, widening economic inequality. People are getting more and more frustrated about that. And if they don't feel that um, despite their promises, the major parties are delivering um, uh, and are uh, refuse to address those problems, they may make a break, as they have in the past, for other parties. So, yes, there are, there are major obstacles, but mm -hmm. the fact that there have been breakthroughs at, at different levels, true, most of them at the, at the local level, some of them at the state level. There was just a uh, member of the Vermont Progressive Party who was elected lieutenant governor in this past election. So it is possible to start at a local level and work your way up use it as a springboard for higher office. Bernie Sanders did that. He started out as mayor, then he became congressman, then he became senator. So I wouldn't dismiss those lower-level wins. They can be a very important springboard to higher office. But beyond that, as I was saying before, uh, uh, crisis, intensifying discontent, delegitimization of, of the major parties and the government as a whole can lead to the more, a more dramatic breakdown of our party system and the rise of an alternative. Well, let's turn this conversation to what's happening at the DNC this weekend. Uh, I want to first cite Cleo Chang. She was writing at the New Republic. She said there's one real difference between Ellison and Perez. Ellison has captured the support of the left wing. It appears the underlying reason some Democrats prefer Perez over Ellison has nothing to do with ideology, but rather his loyalty to the Obama wing. He would allow that wing to retain more control, even if Obamaites are loath to admit it. And to piggyback on that, Glenn Greenwald points to another consideration. He says that billionaire Democratic donor Haim Saban calls Ellison anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. And again, he's positing that it's kind of a power play to keep the powers that be in the Democratic Party in the place where they are now. And I wonder about your thoughts on that. And can you connect that to the need for a new progressive party when you see the Democrats' power so concentrated? Well, I believe that those charges against Ellison are exaggerated. Um, he, he is being um, portrayed as a, uh, a champion of progressives in his contest for DNC chair. And um, he has his positions on the issues uh, tend to lean in the progressive direction. Um, but when it comes to actually reforming the party, I don't think he's given any indication that he's really willing to challenge the rules that keep the establishment in power. 
there's a consensus among the various candidates not to do that. Why? Because the, the uh, Democratic officials who are voting uh, have an interest in maintaining the system as it is, and therein is the problem. Uh, we see that the interest in uh, maintaining the status quo within the party is very entrenched. We don't want to forget that uh, that establishment is supported by wealthy donors who do not want to see the system open. The, sorry, the party opened up to uh, the grassroots, and um, I believe that uh, Ellison's reluctance to take a strong stand against the rules that enforce the status quo reflects that. Yeah, I actually appreciated some points that you had in your article about exactly where he falls down for progressive. Uh, To quote from your article, he's downplayed the party's mistreatment of its progressive base. He won't admit that voting interference occurred. He said that if he were elected chair, this is a big one, he would not mandate a ban on donations from lobbyists. It's interesting to see with all of that happening that he's been posited posited as such a progressive voice. And I wonder if the case is that's just the most progressive voice that we can find. Well, I believe he's progressive on issues. He supports an increase in the minimum wage. He's concerned about immigrant immigrant rights and the environment. And that's all a good thing. But the question is, is he going to change the rules so that more Democrats can be elected who will actually push that kind of progressive politics? And if he's not, then, um, you know, it does raise serious doubts, as I say in the article, about how progressive he really would be in this specific role in terms of managing the Democratic Party and how it um, uh, deals with its own elections. You know, I see echoes between how the Dems appear to be doubling down to protect their donors, to protect their status with their donors. And what we see with Donald Trump, frankly, Trump doubles down on things that any poll will tell you although he gets cheered within, you know, a, a speech hall, on the whole, what he's suggesting and what he's doing is pretty widely unpopular. And it's just a parallel that makes me nervous about the two of them. But I'm wondering if you have any insight into how clearly the Dems recognize the discontent from the center to the left and whether they grasp that they really need to address that, because I don't see them doing it. Well, They may address it rhetorically. That's what they tend to do when there's an upsurge of um, populist discontent among their base. They've done it many times before. But the question is, will they really take a stand in terms of pushing important policies? Now, they may uh, do that superficially if they feel that um, certain types of progressive legislation are going to fail anyway because... Uh, they are not in the majority. They might make sort of a false attempt to push some more progressive things and then blame it on the Republicans. Um, but the question is, will they stand up to the Republicans um, when they have an opportunity to block some of their more uh, conservative um, projects? Uh, will they try to use the power um, uh, of um, a filibuster, for example, mm-hmm. to do that? Or will they wind up uh, going along with compromising with Republicans and uh, uh, allowing them uh, to gain some significant parts of of what they want? I think the base will be watching that. And I do believe people are more suspicious of rhetoric nowadays and are more carefully monitoring what politicians do, not just what they say. Thank God for that. (laughs) I've got one more question for you. And that's toward the end of your article, you say arguably the most intriguing of the alternatives right now is the draft Bernie movement. I voted for Bernie. I really would have liked to see him uh, in the election against Donald Trump. But I'm wondering at this point, 
he has become a more polarizing figure since the election. And I wonder if there's any way to reliably quantify how much support for him would be out there. Well, uh, you know, polarizing isn't necessarily a bad thing if you are mobilizing your own base to support politicians or candidates who can really further your agenda. So that doesn't... uh, that doesn't bother me so much much if he's turning people off. He's probably turning people off who wouldn't have voted for him anyway. Mm. Um, so I'm not, uh, I'm not so concerned about that. I, I do believe that he still is one of the most popular politicians in the country, you know, despite the fact that he eventually endorsed Hillary Clinton. I think he did that for pragmatic reasons. I wasn't so thrilled about that myself. But nevertheless, if you follow some of the comments being made by his supporters, I think there's still a strong base of support for him that could be mobilized in a positive direction. Now, channeling that into the Democratic Party, into a structure that, in my view, is rotten from the standpoint of progressive politics and won't foster deep, constructive changes in our society that we need, that wouldn't be a good way of mobilizing that potential. However, If he gets frustrated enough with his attempts to reform the Democratic Party, there is a chance that he might shift back to independent politics. He's made statements to the effect that he's receptive, or he's implied that he's receptive to doing that if his attempt to push the Democrats to the left fails. Jonathan Martin is professor of sociology at Framingham University. His post at Huffington is progressives need a new party, not a new DNC chair. Jonathan, thanks so much for the time. Great talking to you. Thanks. Coming up on the broadcast, we're going to be looking at LGBT concerns with Trump in office. What can teachers and parents and other mentors do to help out kids coming up in the LGBT community? I'm Angie Cura. You're listening to the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It is the broadcast. I'm Angie Caro. As you know, the Trump administration went out of its way to quash a bit of civil justice meted out by Barack Obama. On the way out the door, as it were, President Obama issued an order that Americans can use the bathrooms allocated for the gender with which they identify. This in the face of scare tactics and horror stories of the gazillions of assaults and terror underway because genitals have not been properly scrutinized as every American entered any bathroom anywhere. Okay, well, Trump undid that. It's going to wind its way up the court system, and unless and until Trump's malicious cronies can grab a seat there, there is a chance justice will prevail in bathrooms nationwide. But think for a minute about how this is playing with people who ever so briefly were treated as full adults with full rights to express their actual gender. And a lot of these are kids. And a lot of them already had their hands full trying to deal with prejudice and jeering already. You know what school can be like. You remember. So what now? 
What do you tell kids on the personal level while the wheels of justice crank along on the legal level? Joel Baum is with Gender Spectrum, a Silicon Valley group that works to create inclusive environments for all children and teens. And he talked with me about what parents and teachers can do. Joel, I know that people have been focusing on the legal aspects of Trump's recent decisions and the possibility of challenging those in court. But while that plays itself out, we have to focus on how to support transgender people, you know, be they very young or very old or anywhere in between. And in a lot of cases, that's going to fall to teachers and to parents and to other mentors. So let's talk about how we can be supportive of them, both in understanding that this is not personal, you know, that it's it's strictly political, and how they can get through a time when their very being is controversial. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, what this situation um, has brought for me is a recognition that um, teachers have been supporting kids as individuals in lots of ways forever. It's what we do as educators. And so despite this uh, announcement, they're going to continue to do that. Uh, kids will continue to have adults that are their advocates. They'll continue to be uh, uh, supported in various ways that teachers have been doing for years and years when it comes to the needs of transgender students. And I think what's really important is that um, these educators, that's what we do. It's what educators do all the time is to support individual students to be successful and to um, meet their needs. Well, at what point, Joel, can you start talking to kids about the distinction between, you know, what's happening to them on a personal level and what is political maneuvering? I know some minds are too small to grasp what happens, you know, in a political bubble outside of their own lives. But is that an important distinction to make for a child? I think it is really important for adults to help young people realize that, you know, a lot of the adults around them may not understand the experiences they're having, but that doesn't make those experiences wrong. And kids can hear that and can understand that. And, and as long as we continue to remind uh, young people that any of the objections they're facing, any of the concerns that are being brought up about them, we need to turn those back on the person who's bringing them up. In other words, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's the adults that are struggling with these ideas and, and uh, are having the problem. It's not the young person. Um, but as, unfortunately, as a young person, um, they don't have a lot of power. And so those adults um, impose a lot of their will on those young people and create those challenges that we're seeing. Um, just before uh, you called, I was reading a wonderful article by a teacher um, who is talking to transgender and other gender expansive kids and just reminding them that it's often the adults who are most confused about these ideas. Kids, they're so much more flexible about gender and gender diversity than the adults around them. And so we just need to remind them that, hey, adults have a lot of learning and work to do, um, and, and, it, and they don't need to, to be the ones who make those adults learn. They just need to keep being themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I do like that. The, it's a, the grown-ups that are confused. <laughs> I like that a it lot. It really is. It really is. And it's proven over and over again when we're in schools and we raise these questions and ideas about gender and gender diversity. And the kids essentially just nod right along with us and, 
in many cases are saying, you know, why do you keep telling us this? We get it. It seems like all the grown-ups are the ones who are having a hard time with these ideas. Has the nature of the stories that that uh, that percolate up to gender spectrum, you know, fr- be they from the family or from the school, has the nature of the the tales that you're hearing has that changed since Trump has taken office? I do know there's a great deal of concern about what is going to happen to individual students because of the change in administration. Um, So there certainly has been a growing level of uncertainty, and and that uncertainty can be very, very unsettling um, for our families and and young people and the educators who really want to do right by kids. Um, So, yeah, I would say there has been a shift, and yet what we're trying to remind people is that this work has always been and remains the same. It's about helping people understand more about gender, to recognize that we all have a unique experience when it comes to our gender, and that really this work is is about making sure we just create space for each person to simply be themselves. It doesn't mean we all have to be best friends. It doesn't mean we all have to hang out together. We just have to treat each other with kindness and respect. And, And I think we all learned in elementary school that if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. You don't have to hang out. You just can't be mean. You can't bully other people. Jill, before I let you go, I want to ask, it. in addition to genderspectrum.org, are there other resources parents and teachers can go to to figure out how to get through these times? Yeah, I did want to mention that actually next week on Tuesday from 1 to 2 p.m., we're going to be hosting a, a conversation with an attorney, a soft or from the National Center for Lesbian Rights, that's going to be looking at the Trump decision a little bit more closely. It'll be on Facebook Live. You can just go to the Gender Spectrum Facebook page and see that. Um, but there's a number of wonderful organizations out there supporting schools to be more responsive to students when it comes to gender and gender diversity. And, and really what I encourage families to do is just continue to, re, um, to work with their schools to, to recognize gender and gender diversity, and also to remind families this is not about other kids and other families. It's about all of us. Gender work impacts every young person, and all young people are grappling with gender and having to account for gender as they navigate the world. And so it's just really important for this to be not seen as sort of a special interest issue. It's an issue that impacts every young person. And it's the recognition that gender is something that we're coming to understand in far more nuanced ways, led by young people. And we just need to to take cues from them um, as we seek to create conditions where they're seen and they're safe and they're supported. Joel Baum, the Senior Director of Professional Development and Family Services at Gender Spectrum. Joel, thank you so much. Thank you, Angie. You have a good afternoon. And with that, we head back to the news. Here is a story that should be getting much more coverage than it is. And it's really obvious why it's not. Let's let's find the problem here, okay? Again, this is from the Washington Post. I'm quoting the Post a lot today. I promise I read other things. They just happen to have a really, really good stories today. Not a good story, a disturbing one. He yelled, get out of my country, witnesses say, then shot two men from India, killing one. This took place in Kansas. There are first-degree murder charges against a man accused of opening fire in a bar, killing one Indian man, injuring two other people, causing fears about bigotry to reverberate across the globe. Not reverberating loudly enough. Have you even heard of this? According to witness accounts, the gunman reportedly told two of the people who were shot, both Indian men who worked for Garmin, the technology firm, to, quote, get out of my country before opening fire. He also used racial slurs 
during the shooting on Wednesday. The father of one of the people injured pointed to the election of President Trump, who has routinely described a threat posed to Americans from people outside the country's border, and pleaded with parents in India not to send their children to the United States. That's going to do us a world of good. You know how much talent we get from India? Do you know how much talent we get from outside the American borders overall? I mean, excuse the cliche, but we are, in fact, a nation that was built on the backs of immigrants and through the labor of immigrants. We have immigrants we're very proud of. All of a sudden, all immigrants are bad. Ergo, they can be shot. Now, here's the deal that I think would make this a very different story. Imagine if the shooter said Alihu Akbar before he opened fire. I'm serious. It sounds like I'm being snarky at the very least, but think about it. Kansas City, the middle of the country, two people are shot. One of them dies if the gunman said Alihu Akbar before opening fire. This would be everywhere. This would have headlined CPAC. This would have made the rounds through every possible venue of American and international news because that's what we do to it in the United States. Just wanted you to consider that. This story deserves coverage not only for what it is, but for what it is not. Let's spend a little time going back to CPAC, where CNN covers the appearance of President Steve Bannon, all right, White House chief strategist, as they prefer to call him. They did note that Bannon did not seem like the grim reaper on Thursday. He came off as rumpled and overworked, but passionate about his boss, even though he admits he runs a little hot. Let's just say a slightly more thorough job was done by Robert Costa. Am I going to quote the post again? I'm going to quote the post again. Hey, they're doing the work today. What can I say? They say the reclusive mastermind behind President Donald Trump's nationalist ideology and combative tactics made his public debut on Thursday, delivering a fiery rebuke of the media and declaring that the new administration is in an unending battle for deconstruction of the administrative state. Steve Bannon used his first speaking appearance since Trump took office to vow the president would honor all of the hardline pledges of his campaign. If you think they're going to give you your country back without a fight, you are sadly mistaken, Bannon said, in reference to the media and opposition forces, media slash opposition forces, undoubtedly. Every day it's going to be a fight, and that is what I'm proudest about Donald Trump. All the opportunities he had to waver off this. He had to waver off this? All the people who've come to him and said, oh, you've got to moderate every day in the Oval Office, he tells, tells Reince and I, should be he tells Reince and me, but what do I care? I committed this to the American people. I promised this when I ran, and I'm going to deliver on this. Bannon framed much of Trump's agenda with the phrase, deconstruction of the administrative state, meaning the system of taxes, regulation, and trade pacts that the president says have stymied economic growth and infringed upon U.S. sovereignty. Bannon says the post-World War II political and economic consensus is failing and should be replaced with a system that empowers ordinary people over coastal elites and international institutions. 
yes, these people are scary. Want to know a little sidelight? This got picked up by Forward.com. Steve Bannon wanted to make a Mel Gibson-funded Nazi documentary. In an 11-page outline obtained by the Daily Beast, President Trump's chief strategist aimed to cover an array of topics, including eugenics, Adolf Hitler, abortion, and cloning. The draft was written in 2005, tentatively titled The Singularity, Resistance is Futile. I'm not making this up, okay? I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just reporting. Bannon, who was set to write, direct, and produce, penned one segment on blood purity and Nazis, which would aim to discuss the perfectibility of life through a human-controlled elite race that will bring about a better world. The movie was also set to explore ideas of survival of the fittest and Aryan elite. Daily Beast reached out to Julia Jones, his former writing partner. She said Bannon had been courting Mel Gibson to finance the film. The two allegedly met in person to discuss the singularity. Jones and Bannon, by the way, have since gone their separate ways. She says, I don't want to know him anymore. I don't care if I lose the friendship. Let me wrap with this thought. This could very well be the kind of thing that comes out later on, revealed to be farce, revealed to be parody. I don't know, because I'm bringing it to you, knowing full well it's at least believable. That tells you a lot about what you need to know. It's believable. And that is a wrap on the broadcast. Yikes, busy day. But I'm going to come with you one more time next time around. Always pleased to be with you, Brad and Desi, enjoying a little bit of time off in their stead. I ask you or tell you or wish you good luck, world. Listening to AM 950 KTNF, St. Louis Park, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hey.